The second lesson, also the sermon text from St. Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. For I conclude that our sufferings at the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. In fact, creation is waiting with eager longing for the sons of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it in the hope that even creation itself will be set free from slavery to corruption in order to share in the glorious freedom of the children of God. For we know that all of creation is groaning with birth pains right up to the present time. And not only creation, but also we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Indeed, it was for this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for something we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patient endurance. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. As we approach the 4th of July, most of you have probably already planned how you are going to be celebrating your nation's independence. And if you like to celebrate the freedom of your country the way a lot of people do in this country, by blowing up a little piece of it with fireworks, then you're probably going to have some ringing in your ears come the 5th of July. Fireworks, neighbors' dogs losing their mind. It's always interesting when the 4th of July lands on a Sunday and I get to show up and preach on zero hours of sleep because of all the noise the night before. You don't have ringing in your ears. It's natural for us this time of year in this country to have thoughts of freedom ringing in our minds. And that is a good thing for us to think about the freedoms we have in this country and to thank God for them as our nation approaches the celebration of its independence. Freedom is one of the most precious and valuable things that human beings have. Now, people who don't have it strive for it, and people who live in freedom the way we do in this country and we get to enjoy it, we only get to because it is so valuable that many people have been willing to die for it. And because they made that sacrifice, we get to live in and enjoy the freedoms that we have in this country. It is valuable and it is expensive, the freedom that we enjoy. And as valuable and precious and costly as our political and societal freedoms are, as Christians, we enjoy another kind of freedom that is even more precious and even more valuable. And maybe it's good and natural at a, at a time of year when we're already thinking thoughts of freedom to remember this freedom that we enjoy too. And it is this even greater freedom, even costlier freedom that the Holy Spirit today through the pen of St. Paul points us forward to and reminds us our most glorious freedom is on its way. The Sunday edition of the newspaper that I used to read had a feature called Earth Watch and it took up the lower half of the back page of this newspaper. And Earth Watch was basically a map of the whole world with little icons on it representing all of the natural disasters that happened all over the globe over the course of the past week. So there was like a 
different icon for droughts and earthquakes and fires and even cyclones and tsunamis and wildfires and everything else, volcanic eruptions even. And some weeks when there weren't enough icons to fill up the map, they'd have a scientist write an educational article about natural disasters, explaining to you how these natural disasters come about. For example, I learned that uh, earthquakes are caused when tectonic plates underneath the Earth's surface shift and rub together, and then they crack, and it sends a shock up to the surface. I remember one Sunday in the article, I was very surprised to see the scientist admit uh, nobody really knows what causes a hurricane. We know the conditions that support the formation of a hurricane, but we don't really know why they happen. Tornadoes, he said, are, are even a bigger mystery. And as interesting and informative as all of that scientific knowledge was, it was also interesting to see nobody ever even tried to explain why. Why do we have to live in a world with all this disaster and destruction? Why is it that when I walk home from church, I see not only beautiful, flourishing, wonderful, vibrant plants, but dead ones too? Why is it that I see pretty, hopping, chirping little birds and then roadkill also? Why do we have to live with that sort of thing? And it, it's to that question, why? that St. Paul does give an answer in Romans chapter 8. For we know that all of creation is groaning with birth pains right up to the present time. When Adam and Eve brought the curse of sin into this world, God placed all of creation under the curse, consequence of sin. And all the disasters and troubles that we see in this world are evidence that creation is under the control of sin and all of its consequences. Now this is one of those places where a Christian has to try to hold two different ideas in their heads at the same time that seem to be competing about creation. That God's creation is a jaw-dropping, amazing gift from our Heavenly Father that he gives us to enjoy every day and he still maintains it. We get to live in it and enjoy it. And then on the other hand, you also have to remember that creation is not perfect. It is far from it. All creation, rocks and rivers, sticks and stones, are groaning and lashing out under the curse of sin until the last day. And that includes us, the most important part, the crowd of God's creation. We also live under the weight of sin and all of its consequences. St. Paul puts it this way. Not only the creation, but also we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. There is a lot in these verses about moaning and groaning. Do you ever get tired of listening to people moaning and groaning? The first two congregations I served were very large, and they both had long lists of homebound members who were no longer able to physically attend church. And I just want to ask you for a favor this morning. When you get to that point in your life, when you're so old that you can no longer physically come to church, and that is a legitimate reason, by the way, not to physically come to church, please don't be one of these old people. What, you know, when your pastor comes to you to pray with you at your home and bring you communion where you live, please don't be someone who moans and groans a lot. Be one of those rare, cheerful, happy old people. <laughs> Look at it this way. 
You're 90 years old and you haven't died yet. You're a winner. Be happy. <laughs> but there was just so much moaning and groaning. And I never really learned to enjoy it. I never really looked forward to it. But as the years went by, I did come to understand it better and become more patient with it because you realize these people by this time in their life, they've just been through so much. And it's not that their lives were terrible. Most of them were very richly blessed Christians, but by that time they had been through so many struggles and illnesses and they had attended so many funerals. So I never really got to the point where I looked forward to it, but I was able to, to sit there and listen to it patiently and, and understand it better. And Paul says here, we all groan, he says inwardly. You know, when we are in circumstances where we feel this curse of sin, especially strongly, maybe you don't groan out loud because you don't want to spread negativity to a lot of other people, but we at least groan inwardly in our hearts. You're in a situation where you have to sit next to a loved one who is suffering in the hospital, or you are feeling pain through your own limbs, or you turn on the news at night and you see nothing but stories of death and destruction. We're just like the rest of creation. We groan, at least inwardly, because of the curse of sin and just like all the rest of God's creation, we want relief. We want to be free from it all. So then the question is, where do we turn for real relief? Where do we turn for lasting freedom from sin and from all of its curses and its consequences? Well, it's, it's easy a lot of times for us to turn to the pleasures and the distractions of this world. A lot of people turn to hobbies and sports. A lot of people, especially in this country, figure, I'll just work more. I'll just put in more hours. You know, if I keep my nose to the grindstone, then I won't be able to smell all the garbage that's going on around me in the world. Other people, they open up an investment portfolio and think, ah, yes. Ah, that makes me feel good. There is my anesthesia. And, you know, we should thank God for all of these things that give us some relief that make us feel good in a world full of sin, whether it's hobbies or friends or work or investment or moderate intake of alcohol or whatever it is. These are all gifts from God, and they do give us some amount of relief. They make us feel good in a world that's really tough. God wants us to enjoy those things to the extent that he chooses to give them to us. But the problem for Christians is, and it's wrong, and we all do it sometimes, the problem is when we, we turn to those good things in this world and try to find real relief and lasting, permanent freedom from the consequences of sin. And the reason that's such a mistake and the reason it's wrong is that, as St. Paul tells us in these verses, there, there's a reason he gets into that first. He says all creation is under the curse of sin. That means even the best things in this world, even the things that make us feel good and give us some relief, it's all under the curse of sin. So there's only one source for true and lasting freedom. And that's what Paul points us to. We groan inwardly while we eagerly await our adoption as sons. The redemption of our body. In Jesus' death on the cross, God has adopted us as his children and Paul specifically here calls us sons because sons were the children who were in line for an inheritance. And here Paul says that on the last day, as God's adopted sons, we are going to see the full reality 
of what it means to be his children with an inheritance. We are going to see the inheritance of heaven, which God promises in another place will never perish, spoil, or fade. And that will be permanent freedom, relief from all the troubles of this world. And it is for that hope that Jesus saved us. Paul writes, indeed, it was for this hope we were saved. That salvation is our hope. This is our hope that our most glorious, absolute, total freedom is on its way on the last day because Jesus has done the work to make us God's adopted children. And we should remember that this freedom that is coming to us, it is more than relief from the troubles of this world. It's more than just freedom from headaches and hospitals. I mean, if that's all Jesus has freed us from, his work is really pretty small. Jesus' work means freedom from eternal damnation. It is freedom from the agony of living in permanent separation from your heavenly Father. And in place of that, Jesus not only lifts you out of damnation, but he places you next to your heavenly Father to enjoy the eternal inheritance of heaven. That is the full extent of the freedom that Jesus has won for us. Now, it's often said about our national freedom. You hear this a lot around the 4th of July, and it's true, that freedom is not free. In order for us to enjoy the freedoms we have in this country, people have to serve, people have to sacrifice, people even have to give their lives. That is true of our political and societal freedoms, and it is just as true for this spiritual freedom, this greatest freedom. It required service, and it required sacrifice from our Savior Jesus. And the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, his service, really started when he answered the Father's call to leave his throne in heaven and join us as one of us in this world. Jesus came as true God and a human being like us in order to save us. And we needed Jesus to come as one of us, as a human being, because we needed him to keep all of God's commandments for us and then to die on the cross for our sins. And we needed him to come as God because only God can keep all of the commandments perfectly and only God can make a sacrifice powerful enough to wash away the sins of every human being. In a few seconds, you're going to hear a sentence that Jesus speaks about himself in St. Mark's Gospel. And from this one sentence, you can learn everything you need to know about the service and the sacrifice of your Savior. Because Jesus will call himself the Son of Man, which means he's one of us. He's a human being. And then he's also going to say, he came. And in many places, the Bible explains what that means, that Jesus came from the glory of heaven as true God. And then Jesus will say that his purpose in coming is to give, to serve us, to sacrifice for us by giving his life on the cross as a ransom, as a payment for all the sins of all people. That is the service and the sacrifice that our freedom required. For Jesus to come as one of us to save us, to live a holy life in the place of all people and die for all sin. Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we have Jesus' service and sacrifice that wins our most glorious freedom. And that freedom is our hope. 
Paul writes a lot about hope in these verses. Now, the Bible teaches that we are saved through faith in Jesus. It never says that we are saved through hope, but Paul definitely focuses more on hope in these particular verses. And those two things, faith and hope, always go hand in hand. And maybe the easiest way for us to think about the difference is this. As New Testament Christians, our faith is more backward looking. Faith looks back to the holy life that Jesus lived. Faith looks back to Calvary on Good Friday. It looks back to the empty tomb on Easter. And faith says, that really happened. That happened the way God says it did in his word. And not only did it happen, not only is it historical truth, it happened for me. Jesus did that to wash my sins away and make me God's adopted child. Hope, then, is more forward-looking. God is going to come through. Because of what Jesus did back there, God is going to deliver. And he is going to give me this inheritance in heaven and freedom from damnation and from all the troubles of this world. Now, the way people use the word hope in our language, it can kind of dull some of the significance of this because... I look at a guy sitting in front of the TV screen with a Powerball ticket waiting for the numbers to be announced, and I say, that guy has hope. And I guess he does. He has like a 1 in 57 million hope that he's going to win the Powerball. That's not the kind of hope that St. Paul is writing about here. This is a hope that rests on an unshakable foundation. Our hope for this freedom and for the glory of heaven is as certain as the blood Jesus shed on Calvary. It is as certain as his empty tomb and as the word of our God who cannot and does not lie to us. Christian hope is never disappointed. Paul tells us in this hope we are saved. Hope is also for something you don't see with your eyes. Nobody here has ever put their hands in Jesus' wounds or leaned over and looked into his empty tomb on Easter morning. Jesus' service and sacrifice that wins our freedom, it remains unseen by our eyes. But we have the word of God on this. And as Paul points out, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? So Paul tells us twice here to wait with hope. And he says, Christians, our hope and our waiting is both eager and patient. That is a very challenging combination. To wait for something with both patience and eagerness. And it is only possible for Christians to have that kind of hope because God gives us his promises in his word and in his sacrament. This is why Christians come together and use the word and sacrament in worship. It's why they have pastors lead them in word and sacrament. It's why Christians make their Bibles more than just like decorative pieces on their nightstands and their coffee tables. That's where you see God's promise in Christ. And when you do, your faith grows stronger. And remember, faith and hope are always linked. So when your faith grows stronger, you're going to have more and more of that eager, patient hope that God wants you to have. And when that hope is eager and patient, then we can say, honestly, with St. Paul, I conclude that our sufferings at the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Now, together with St. Paul, we look forward to that most glorious freedom, knowing that it is on its way, because 
God has promised it, and Jesus our Savior has served and sacrificed for it. Amen.